Turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. We'll look at verses 13 to 16. <clears throat> One of the most delightful things I ever get to do as a pastor is to baptize children. Now, if you knew me for a long time, that would surprise you because I didn't grow up believing that we ought to be baptizing children. And I realized that for many sincere believers, like my own family, what you just saw this morning was a strange sight. At the same time, I know that there are others for whom baptizing children is such a comfortable old tradition that they may have never even thought about why we do this. And so this morning, rather than just baptizing Soshi and moving on, I want to focus our attention a bit on this relationship, this matter of God's relationship to our children. Now, I don't think for a moment that I'm going to make some argument and persuade those of you who don't uh, believe in infant baptism. One only comes to that by understanding the broad scope of the covenantal structure of Scripture. I know that. And here at the chapel, we have always had some difference of opinion on this subject. Still, whatever we believe about baptism, we must listen to what God says about our kids. So though we've looked at this passage before, and not that long ago, um, we're going to look at it again this morning. And uh, it's a familiar story. It's one recorded by Matthew and Mark and Luke, three of the four Gospels. Let me read it. Mark 10, verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and bless them. Two powerful truths that I'd like for you to reflect on with me this morning from this text. The first is this. Jesus includes our children in his kingdom. Jesus includes our children in his kingdom. Years ago, uh, Jane and I were involved in a church planting effort back on the East Coast. We met in a mostly abandoned uh, Grange Hall was an interesting place to meet. There were dog obedience classes in there earlier in the week, so we often during the sermon had little hairballs go floating across when the heating came on. But what, when we met in that old building, it became a lively place. Jane and I, about 40-something then, were like the oldest ones in the church, and all these young families had lots of kids, and the kids way outnumbered the adults, and it was a wonderful, noisy restless place with metal chairs on a hard floor it was a sight to be at church in the Grange Hall not long after we started that another church moved and built out of the city uh, of Camden and built a nice beautiful building just across the field I mean it was about a mile but you could see it from where we were and everything was new and beautiful inside but they had no kids in that church I mean, almost everybody in that church was 60 or older. Well, before long, their pastor died. And we faced an interesting prospect. 
we had a pastor and lots of young families and they had a beautiful building but no pastor and no young families, no children. And we were both in the same denomination. This is a no-brainer. Why don't we just merge and have one healthy church with a building and multi-generational congregation? It seemed like a great idea, but it never happened. They never would buy that idea. And in a way, I was relieved. Can you imagine what a problem our noisy, messy children would have been in that perfect, newly carpeted, red, plush, cushioned, white, colonial, trim church? I don't think kids were very welcome there. That attitude is kind of what happens here in Mark 10. There was excitement in the air. Jesus, the great teacher, had come into town. And people were turning out in droves to see him and hear what the great teacher had to say. And suddenly, somebody had the audacity to bring their children along into this very important, impressive gathering. And not only that, to interrupt Jesus and ask him to bless their kids. I'm sure you can imagine this scene, parents trying to insert their children into what is obviously an adults-only kind of setting. Well, the apostles were right on top of this. They were running interference for the Lord. They rebuked those parents without hesitation. Ah, but Jesus unexpectedly reversed the apostles' actions and welcomed those little children For Jesus includes little children in his kingdom. Now, as we look more carefully about what happened there in this first point, I want to make three observations. And the first is this. These were babies. These were babies. There are several different Greek words. The New Testament is written in Greek. There are several different Greek words that Mark could have used to describe these children. There's the word pais. That's a general word for children. It it normally means children between about ages 7 and 14. None of the gospel writers use that word, however, in regard to these children. Then there's another word, paideia. Paideia is a diminutive form of pais. It means little child or very young child or even infant. In other words, it's someone who is not more than about 7 years old. This is the word used by Mark and also by Matthew, paideia, a very young child. But there's a third word, and that word is brefe. It's a word that means baby, infant, newborn, even unborn. And interestingly, that's the word Luke uses to describe the same event. Do you see the significance of that? If you put it all together, Matthew and Mark use a word that can mean little children as young as infants. Luke is a bit more specific and uses a word that can only mean infants. In other words, these were babies being brought to Jesus. Actually, Mark indicates the same thing in verse 16 when he tells us that Jesus took the children in his arms. Over the years, I've picked up a lot of kids. I love kids. I hope they know that. Uh, As I think back, though, I don't think I've ever picked up a 15-year-old. In fact, 7-year-olds don't like you to pick them up. 
You pick up little ones, little tykes, babies. Folks this, folks, this account indicates that Jesus includes babies in his kingdom. Second observation there on this first point. Jesus did something significant with these children. You know, we're used to cute little gestures. We see them in political campaigns, politicians kissing babies, that kind of thing. Jesus didn't do that kind of stuff. He, he didn't do cute little meaningless gestures to work the crowd. He just didn't. So what did Jesus do with these children? Well, the New International Version that we read here says somewhat casually, he put his hands on them. The older King James Version says quite literally, he laid hands on them. Now the question is, how significant of an act was this? That can mean a lot of things. How significant is this? Well, if we look at that phrase, laying hands, it's used 40 times in the New Testament. It's used in conjunction with healings, with baptisms, with the giving of the Holy Spirit, with ordination to the ministry. So it would be very strange, would it not, if the word used to describe all of those great significant events of the faith in this one particular place meant nothing more than Jesus patted upon the head. The Dictionary of New Testament Theology, a rather unbiased Greek dictionary, explains this gesture of blessing symbolizes the gracious offer of a share in the kingdom of God made to those who are not of age. John Calvin, you either love him or hate him, he goes even further. He says, when others contend that we are reconciled to God and become heirs of the adoption only by faith, we confess this is true of adults. But that it applies also to infants, this passage proves false. The laying on of hands was certainly no frivolous or empty symbol. Nor did Christ pour forth his prayers into the empty air he could not solemnly present them to God without giving them purity. And what was his prayer for them but that they might be received among the children of God? From this it follows that they were regenerate by the Spirit in the hope of salvation. And finally that he embraced them was a testimony that Christ reckoned them in his flock. Oh, make no mistake, Jesus did something significant to these children. Now, this passage never mentions baptism. I know it doesn't. That's the occasion that brought us to this in the first place. But it's difficult not to see some justification for it here. For clearly, God has not abandoned his plan to include our children in his kingdom. Well, then a third observation on this first point. The first one, these are babies. The second is that Jesus did something significant to these children. And then thirdly, hindering children makes Jesus mad. There's an expression used here in verse 14 that's found nowhere else in the Bible. It says Jesus was indignant 
the apostles rebuked the parents for bringing their children, and Jesus rebuked the apostles. He commanded them to stop hindering these children. Oh, these children were not old enough to come of their own free will. They were babies being brought by their parents. But Jesus said, stop holding them away. And until they allowed the children to come, he was indignant. I don't know about you, I'm not anxious to have Christ indignant with me. So if that's the case, this text indicates we'd better not hinder our children from coming to him. You see, whether we include children in God's kingdom or not is really not a matter of our personal preference. Christ commands that they be included, and he is indignant when they are not. As I thought about this a while, though, I realized there are a lot of ways to hinder our children from coming to the Lord, just to get practical about it. Let me mention a few ways I thought of. You maybe think of some more. We can just refuse to include them in God's covenant. We can, we can act like they're little pagans running around our house that are not part of God's people and have no claim to anything and, uh, until they grow up enough to make their own decision. And when we do so, we hinder them. And Christ is indignant. Or we can recognize that they're covenant children, but we can just never get, in, get around to training them, never discipline them in holiness, never teach them the faith, never require them to obey the Lord. And if we do so, we hinder them, allowing them to go on in their sinful ways, and the Lord is indignant. Or, on the other hand, we can hinder them by being overzealous in our training. We can train our children with such harshness that we virtually guarantee that at the first opportunity they will bolt and run from the faith as fast as they can, shaking the dust off of their feet as they go. But that's not how our Heavenly Father deals with us, is it? With harshness? Christ is indignant when we do that with our children. Or we can educate them year after year, make sure they have the best education, but never bother to teach them that all truth belongs to God, even math and science. So we should not be surprised when they grow up and think that Christ is irrelevant to the real world. We hindered them by not teaching them the truth. And Christ is indignant. Or we can hinder them by filling their lives so full of good things, ball games and gymnastics classes and whatever, that there's no time for Jesus. There's no time for training. There's no time for church. And we're hindering them. And Christ is indignant. Or the very worst way. We can say all the right things and go through the motions but at home live in such a way that our children see our hypocrisy. And we hinder them, driving them away by our own unchanged lives. And Christ is indignant. 
This morning, with all my heart, I call you to bring your children to Jesus. I firmly believe that that involves infant baptism, but it certainly doesn't end there. It means much more than that. It has to do with all of life, with all of our expectations and our goals and our plans and our example and our teaching and our discipline and our compassion for our children. Do not hinder your children from knowing the Savior, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that, not me. That's the first thing we need to learn. Then there's a second, very different truth in these verses. Jesus only accepts the helpless. Jesus only accepts the helpless. After many years in the military, I'm always amused when I see armed forces recruiting ads. Look at the Air Force. That's a great way of life. Look at those planes. Boy, you could be up there zooming around the air. You, you, that could be your life. Sign up today. <laughs> oh, you want to bet? There are a few other requirements that they never mentioned. You must have a college degree. You must pass endless batteries of tests. You must, must have perfect vision. 2020, not colorblind, good peripheral vision, good depth perception, etc., etc. You can never have been knocked unconscious, not even for a moment in a ball game. You must be at least five foot six inches tall and not more than six foot three inches tall, etc., etc., etc. The requirements go on. See, there's more to the requirements than a simple welcome. Come and have great, have a great time. So, what about God's kingdom? Does He really welcome people like us? Or behind the attractive offer of new life, does he really have an unattainable list of other requirements? Well, here Jesus addresses the question, who may enter the kingdom of heaven? That's the most profound human question there is, actually. It's, it, it is the quest, in one form or another, of every religion in the world. Who and how may one enter God's kingdom? Now concerning this question, the Bible has much to say. It tells us about God's holiness, his wrath against sin. It tells us about God's law, which defines the holiness he requires and condemns us because we're not that holy. It tells us about his love and how he sent his only son. It tells us about the, uh, his atonement, how Christ shed his blood in payment, atonement for our sin. It tells of the response which God requires, repentance from our useless attempts to save ourselves, turning away from our sinfulness, trusting the Lord Jesus as our only Savior. But in formulating all of those things, which are all true and all good, and working out all the details of what the Bible teaches us about entering Christ's kingdom, sometimes we can lose sight of the forest for all the trees. So Jesus, here, ignoring our volumes of theology books, goes right to the heart of the matter. And in verse 15, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Do you see his point? Not only does Jesus include little children in his kingdom, there is a sense in which he only includes little children in his kingdom. 
or at least those who come as little children. In other words, Jesus only accepts the helpless. So what does it mean to be childlike? Well, it certainly does not mean that we can be physically a child again. This was Nicodemus's hang-up when Jesus said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus replied, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter into your mother's womb another time and be born? It seemed absurd to him. He thought Jesus was talking about physical rebirth. Neither was Jesus suggesting we become like children mentally. Some Christians have thought like this, seeming to glorify ignorance as godliness, thinking faith was anti-intellectualism. But the God who made our minds does not ask us to throw our minds away, to trust him. In fact, he demands we love him with all our minds. Jesus certainly did not mean for us to be childish in the sense of foolish irresponsibility. God never glorifies immaturity among those who ought to be grown up. As for the foolishness which often comes with immaturity, God calls folly sin. He doesn't glorify foolishness. Nor is Jesus calling us to be childlike in, in the sense that we have some childlike innocence. The scriptures clearly teach that children are not innocent. They're born in sin. We're born in guilt, needing a savior. So since none of these are what Jesus meant by becoming like a little child, not physically, not mentally, not in immaturity, not in regard to some lost innocence, some have suggested that the childlikeness that Jesus holds before us here was in reference to simple faith, that we are to believe and trust wholeheartedly like a child. And there's certainly some truth to this. Faith is the means by which we come to God. And children often do show us wonderfully clear examples of simple trust. But may I suggest that the truth of our text is even more profound than that. The point is, there is no ability or quality characteristic of children that makes them more acceptable to God. God receives children because of their characteristic total inability. Colin Brown makes this exact point in his Dictionary of New Testament Theology. I quote, Jesus' pronouncement reverses the apparent understanding of the disciples. Instead of insisting that men should be mature enough to make a responsible commitment, Jesus is saying there is a sense in which the reverse is true. The reason why the kingdom belongs to children is not because of any subjective qualities they may have. It lies in their objective helplessness. Jesus only accepts the helpless. The late New Testament scholar William Lane makes the same point. He writes, The ground of Jesus' surprising statement is not to be found in any subjective quality possessed by children, but rather in their objective humbleness, 
and in the startling character of the grace of God who wills to give his kingdom to those who have no claim on it. The kingdom may only be entered by one who knows he is helpless and small without claim and without merit. The unchildlike piety of achievement must be abandoned. You may recall that was the problem that the Apostle Paul had before he was a believer. He was so self-sufficient in his theological knowledge and his pious life and his devout religious observance and his spiritual heritage. He couldn't come to Jesus for that. That would be an admission that all of his efforts were worth nothing. Indeed, it would be an admission that he was helpless, not acceptable to God the way he was in need of something as ugly as a Messiah dying on a cross in his place. But that's exactly the point that God had to bring Saul of Tarsus before he could become the great apostle, before he could ever enter the kingdom. He had to count all his efforts, his own merit, his finest hours, to be nothing but dung pile of manure before God. He had to become as helpless as a little baby. And then God gave him the kingdom. Jesus only accepts the helpless. This morning, if you're convinced you're acceptable to God, I must tell you, you have no hope of entering the kingdom. Sorry. He only accepts the helpless. Oh, but as ominous as it sounds at first, this is actually a joyous truth. For how could I, a mere mortal, somehow convince the eternal God to accept me? How could I, a sinful man, ever convince the Holy One not to turn me away? How could I ever be smart enough and devout enough and diligent enough to convince him to lay aside his standards and ignore my rebellious, stubborn, selfish, greedy ways? And even if I did convince him to accept me, how could I ever sustain his favor? Could I guarantee I would never fail again? That my heart would never grow cold again? that my motives and actions would never be pure again? You see, if it depends on us, we are truly hopeless. But here the good news. In his mercy, Christ receives the helpless. So dear people, if God in his mercy has brought you, and I bet painfully, to the end of yourself, To recognize that you are as helpless and unable to save yourself as a little baby. Then this morning I call you to come to Jesus empty-handed. Without any claim. Without any righteousness. Without anything to offer. Helpless and hopeless. 
And as I call you to Jesus, I also tell you his promise. Whoever comes to me, I will not turn away. For Jesus says, the kingdom belongs to such as these. Wiseley Chapel is a church full of children. God has blessed us with little ones. And we rejoice in that, for we understand that Jesus includes our children in his kingdom. But Wiseley Chapel is also a church full of children in more ways than one. In a most profound sense, we are a whole church full of little children. For here we believe that Christ only accepts the helpless and we confess ourselves to be that. We freely admit we're as helpless as little babies, as helpless and unable to save ourselves as little Soshi, who we baptized this morning. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, thank you for your grace, Father. We live with this illusion that somehow we're going to catch up and somehow we're going to be good enough and somehow we're going to attain the right to stand in it. Somehow, somehow, someday. Thank you when you remind us that that's all hopeless. Thank you that in your grace you receive us when we're broken, guilty, wayward, messed up, helpless as a baby. Now, Lord, we wouldn't use this against you. We would not say, okay, it doesn't matter then that I be faithful. It doesn't matter that I pursue holiness. It doesn't matter that I obey. We know you didn't mean that. But deliver us from thinking that somehow it's up to us. Thank you that up front we have your grace. And in that grace then you enable us to live for you all our days. May that be our experience, every one of us. May we understand that wonderful good news of the gospel of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.